Welcome to the Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hi, I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Today's guest on the podcast is David DeSalt. He is the founder of P1 Industries in Schenectady, New York. This is part two of my conversation with David. David started P1 after leaving General Electric and has built a solid business in machining and fabricating precision metal components for the energy and defense industries. David and I had a great conversation on how he keeps his eye focused on customer service and building a great culture within the company. This is a great example of applying entrepreneurial skills to traditional to a traditional manufacturing process. This was a long conversation I had with Mike, so we broke it into two parts. This is part two. You can find part one in episode 156. You can check it out there. Great. Bela, I'm excited to hear the conclusion. So let's get right to part two of your interview with David DeSalt. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about labor and hiring hiring folks. I just did a, a, another episode of the podcast where the guest I talked to, we talked about the value of apprenticeships. Yeah. And and how, you know, most of the world thinks about apprenticeships for the trades, a plumber right. or an electrician. Yeah. Uh, but even in the, I mean, a re, uh, if you're a doctor, a medical residency is basically an apprenticeship. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we don't call it that, yeah. but it's an apprenticeship. You know, the first five years of my engineering career was fundamentally an apprenticeship. I, yeah. I learned how to do all the things they didn't teach me at school. That's right. Yeah. So how do you how is the labor situation? Because you hire a lot of skilled workers. We do, we do. And and uh, how do, how does that work? For, how has that worked for you? Yeah, so you're you're exactly right. Labor shortages is the biggest problem that we face as an organization. You know, with with regard to you know, I started the company 16, 17 years ago. You know, I'll, I'll pick on a machinist for a second. We 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 have a lot of trades. We have engineers, supply chain people, logistics, fabricators, welders, engineer, all those kind of things. But machinists are really, really in particular, they're, they're in low supply, they're high demand, they're highly, highly skilled, right? As a, as a machinist, you know, a machinist is not, you know, I hate the term blue collar, they're not a blue collar person, they're a software programmer, they're, an elect they're a mechanical engineer, an electrical engineer, they're a quality control individual, they're a maintenance technician, they're kind of this hybrid, you know, person that can, can make physical products from code and physical metal, it, you know, in an environment where it has to be temperature controlled, they're using coolants, they're, they're, they're hitting dimensions to the fourth and fifth place decimal. I mean, it is, you know, and you change a temperature on aluminum piece, it's going to change how it dynamically, you know, impacts with the cutter you're using. I mean, it is engineering. Like this is, these are very, very highly skilled people. They're not pushing buttons. Okay. And we, we have a very young workforce. So our, our average age, we have like 45 machinists on staff and the average age is 29 years old. And the reason that is because you cannot find, if you find a seasoned machinist in the workplace, they're employed and they've probably been at that employee for 10 years and they're making really, really good money to have incredible amount of benefits because they're highly skilled. So what we had to do is we had to go into the high schools and we built a program called Pathways. And our pathways program is we'll go identify those kids that don't necessarily want to go to four-year schools, but they want a highly valued career and we'll bring them in as interns. So we hire five pathways interns every, every quarter. So we hire 20 a year. We get them out of high schools. We get them out of the trade schools. We get them out of BOCES. We get them out of uh, Hudson Valley Community College. 
and we'll plug them into a three-month program. And then during that three months, they're going to do five or six different things. They're going to empty chip bins. They're going to they're going to do quality control. They're going to move carts around. They're going we're going to give them kind of an exposure to everything. And what we're really looking for is uh, versatility, adaptability, and work ethic. Right? Are they willing to work hard and learn and grow in that situation? And if we find the right people, so the last class of five, we hired two full time. And now we're sending them to Hudson Valley Community College. We pay for their tuition. They're going for the advanced manufacturing and, uh, and, and machining degree. It's a two-year program. It's a four-year program at night. We employ them full-time. We pay for it. They get a good starting wage. And then they apprentice inside of our shop. So we actually, we're actually registered with the Department of Labor. We actually have a physical journeyman certificate apprenticeship program. They got to do 8,000 hours in addition to their education. That's how we built our workforce. Like we have 45 machines today. We put every single one of them with the exception of like three or four through that same program. And, and we've done that very, very successfully. Now, we also have a vision and a strategy of, you know, one of the things, you know, 2019, 2020, we started looking at how do we grow our business from at that time, 17, 18 million to 50 million. And what's the biggest constraints? Not sales, we can sell, right? We build good relationships, we can execute and do all those kind of things. Um, equipment you can buy, right? Buying equipment's easy. Call the bank, get a loan, right. in the shop. I mean, it's expensive. But we never had a problem buying equipment. It's really finding the people to run equipment. So we did some analysis and we discovered that there's 16,000 machining companies in the United States, 864 in New York State alone, that have 20 or less employees. And generally they have about eight. That's kind of our sweet spot. It's eight people. They're all machinists. They all have equipment factories, whether it's a garage or not, and they're highly competent. So we've actually started developing and cultivating. You know, we got 14 of these shops working with very intrinsically today. And we're actually leveraging their people, their expertise, their equipment. Mm. We treat it as yeah. our own capacity. So we don't have to hire them. We don't have to train them. But we're, we're utilizing their capacity and their expertise. And we treat it like our own. So we kind of we always say to people, they say, how many employees you have? They're like, we got 104 inside the four walls of our three factories. But we really have 320. Yeah. Right. Because of all these shops we're working with. Yeah. You know, as you're saying that, David, remind me of uh, there. there's that's a very popular concept in Japan. I don't know what they call it. There's a name for it because yeah. I remember from my IBM days when I did a lot of business in Japan, even though the company only had a hundred people in it, right? They had this whole network of, you know, another 10, 15 companies out there that were, I won't say captive suppliers, yeah. Yeah. but they were close to it. Right. Yeah, I, so say par I say partners. They're partners. Yes. Partners yeah. is a much better word. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we we have the same thing. We've you know we have painstakingly developed and cultivated, and we target really small shops, right? We want to. What of our vision? What part of our vision to revitalize American manufacturing? Well, part of that is not just hiring people inside of our four walls, but helping these small shops and you know these small little towns in America. Giving them, they don't have salespeople. They don't have a five-person sales or marketing force. They don't have an engineering team like we do. So we'll go out and we'll hunt for the work. We'll develop the relationships. Mm. And if we think we can buy a product in a high-quality capacity, now we still put our name on it. We'll bring it in. We'll sure. package and ship it. But yeah, absolutely. We we believe that we can fill those small shops as well. And um, and leverage because they have people that even if they have eight machinists, that's eight machinists. I don't have to hire and train in the future. We're still trying to do that, but they're already locked in. They've already got certain right. capability. And you, you know how fast we can test it? We can give them a test product. If they make it, they hit the specs and everything else. That's pretty good. Yeah. So yeah, our, our vision. That's part of our scaling story. Is and we we built a whole software platform for it. We right. we're using software to to um, to manage that supply base and quotes out. Um, do a bunch of different things to manage this decentralized supply chain. And that's our growth story. That's where we're going with it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting talking about these apprenticeship programs uh, just for another minute. 
I can remember when I started at GE in 1975, right, at grad school, they had an apprenticeship program for toolmakers. Uh, because right. you know, I, I I was a mechanical engineer. I had a lot of stuff made, and and the guys that were making it, some of them were apprentices. And yeah. and so it was a two-year program. And it was interesting in those days. They not only did they have an apprentice program for toolmakers and machinists, die makers, etc., they also had one for uh, people in finance and people in leadership. Right. So yeah. they had these multiple levels or tiers or types of apprenticeship. Yeah. They didn't call them apprenticeship programs. Yeah. But they were fundamentally what they were for training the workforce at all different levels. Yeah. And it's interesting how it, in many ways we've gotten away from that in this country, right? We've we've sort of drifted away from that in, into this real bifurcation of jobs into yeah. the super entry level. You're making minimum wage, 15 bucks an hour to people making well into six figures. Yeah. And, and, and that the middle has sort of gone away. Yeah. Why do you, why do you think like particularly in the manufacturing sector we used to own manufacturing in the in the world no, right I'm... United States was one of you know in the 40s 50s 60s yeah. one of the best manufacturing places in the yeah. world what happened how did all that stuff vanish yeah, you know, I've, I've, this is something that's near and dear to my heart. I could go on about this for six hours. I won't. But uh, the, um, you know, look, if, if you go back, I think 1976 was the last year we had a positive trade balance in the United States. Right. And what that fundamentally means is you're shipping or exporting more than you're buying or importing. And in the 1980s, the whole uh, low cost country thing really became uh, popular right there. Hey, oh, I can go into China. I can go into India. I can go to other parts of the world and my direct cost. I can bring down, you know, by by some multiple, not not by 10 percent or 20 percent. I can bring it down a multiple of two to three times versus what I'm paying in the United States. And I think part of the whole notion of, you know, short termism around, you know, Wall Street and three month earning calls and all that kind of stuff really drives a lot of that short term thinking. Um, and, you know, and, and, and again, at that time, the, in the short term, it was probably a high impact to margins, cash flows, all these other things. Um, but I think the, the things that people don't talk about that was truly lost during that era. And I'm not going to pick on companies. I could throw a couple of companies out that had a huge, huge push into that world where, you know, everything was offshored. You know, they called it the low cost country initiative, um, but they lost their ability to develop new products and bring things rapidly to market and iterate and do research and development in a very highly effective way. We lost that manufacturing base as a result of those things. And you're seeing a lot of companies that once dominated 30, 40 years ago, that are not dominating anymore. And I believe, you know, again, I'm a little bit biased, but when I read McKinsey reports on it, that study the country, the companies that had a, had a high low cost uh, country initiative versus that had low, they may have outperformed in the short term, but in the long term, they lost their edge in terms of product development you know, innovation, marketing, That's right. things that they do. And, you know, so I think, I think that it was, it was short-termism. And what's interesting is uh, I read a recent book. Uh, I won't well, let, let me, let me, let me, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Yeah. Yeah. Let me add one point to that. A lot of those companies that were manufacturing those products for those American companies in low cost yeah. parts of the world yeah. are now really big companies That's that right. own that market. <laughs> that own that market and the whole tech transfer you know, right. you, 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 you know, I, I worked on teams in the past that did business with China and there's tech transfer. And, you know, I often heard the excuse, well, we're giving them old technology. Yeah, well, you're giving them like a 40 year head start from where we had to start from. That's you know? right. 
Um, right. and, and then all of a sudden now, you know, the, the middle class emerges in those countries. They're making a lot That's more right. money. Prices start going up. Then there's a pandemic and geopolitical interconnections and logistic change, supply chain stop. And all of a sudden now you start looking at supply chain a little bit differently saying, hey, there's a direct cost component. There's a quality component. I'm sure a lot of those companies in a low cost country became high quality producers. But now there's a interruption component. There's a risk component related to geopolitical issues. There's there's a war in Ukraine. There's a pandemic that shuts down you know, a good part of China. You know, we see what happens with inflation, with cost of goods, with lead times and all the other stuff. And I think the pandemic exposed our lack of readiness as a U.S. We couldn't yeah. even, we couldn't even manufacture basic PPE for for hospitals you know, because we couldn't get raw materials or the products from overseas because of all the interconnected. And I think I think that exposed a lot of weaknesses because I agree with you. I graduated what's off what's called the Operations Management Leadership Training Program in right. GE02, right. which fundamentally was an apprenticeship for, you know, operational leadership with supply chain and manufacturing. And that's kind of what got me into that into that world. Um, you know, a lot of companies aren't investing in those things anymore because that's a long term investment. Well, you need short term results. Right. So let's go buy companies. Let's offshore manufacturing. Let's do all right. these other things. But I think we're starting to see a kind of a big shift because people are realizing, you know, with technology and productivity. So the United States, I don't know the exact data point. It's this is close enough just for to get the point across it. it we were our, our productivity is like 100 times that of China's because of technology and process improvements we've made over the last 100 years. OK, so that means that we can fundamentally produce a product with one one hundredth of the labor input that China can. I don't know if that's purely accurate. It's in that range. It's pretty high. It's a pretty high offset, you know, which is quite interesting. So technology integration into manufacturing coupled with geopolitical risk and other issues overseas, coupled with being able to quickly invert in, in an adaptable turn products around very, very quickly, not to mention inventory holding strategies, you know, filling up containers with a ton of product that by the time it gets here, it's obsolete with rev, rev controls because customers change things. All of those factors are becoming part of the, the, the discussion around manufacturing supply chain. I'm going to venture to say this. Manufacturing added jobs in the last decade for the first time since the 1970s. And uh, in, in aggregate in the United States, slow down a little bit in the beginning of the pandemic, it's, it's building up again. I think it's the greatest shortage of labor in the U.S. is in the manufacturing sector right now. Um, I venture to say that, you know, the U.S. will become a prominent manufacturer once again in the next 30 years because of all those factors, our stability, our economy, our currency, our labor force, our quality, our infrastructure, our roads, our government, all those things built into one makes it a very, very viable manufacturing center once again. And I think it's got to be at the forefront of every politician, every strategy and everything else, because when you have a positive export balance versus import balance, right, your deficit as a country starts declining because you're making more money than you're spending. That's right. And uh, you're creating jobs for the middle class and, and putting wealth back into the pockets of mainstream America, which I think is really important. Yeah, well said. So is is there a is there a country someplace in the world that does this really well? Uh, well, geez, I mean, if you look at China, did it very well. <laughs> I mean, if, if you want to look at a country, I mean, look what China. You know, I always tell people this. I said, I go, if you look at every emerging nation, right? They call it the BRIC nations back in the day. They said it was Brazil, what was it? Russia, India, and China, right? Is that, it was our Russia, I believe. Yeah. You know, the, the, these nations, when they wanted to generate significant wealth and influence and power in the world, what's the first thing they started developing? They didn't go out and start developing software. They do those things. They didn't go out. <coughs> they developed manufacturing. Right. 
India is the next, you know, the next frontier, Thailand, Vietnam, all these other places. They want manufacturing because they want to export goods. They want their nations to be wealthy. They want to put their middle class right. people to work. They want this whole group of people in the country that can't afford to go to four-year college, nor should they go to four-year college, to have trade where they can build careers and everything else around that. Who does it well? Those countries do it well. And I say Germany. Germany's another one. I don't yes. know the exact statistics around Germany, but Germany is a net exporter of manufactured goods. And has been for many, many, many years. Yes. And Germany, you never hear of, of uh, Germany's deficits and all of, I mean, they got issues just like any other nation in the world, but Germany is a manufacturing state. They're a manufacturing right. nation. They've done it very right. well. But I always tell people, I was like, they're like, oh, manufacturing is not that important. I go, then why is every country who wants to be powerful and rich and grow and everything else invest heavily in manufacturing? It's the first thing they do. And you know what, do. you know what it does is, is I always think that manufacturing and it's in a, in a broadest sense, right? All of the skills that are necessary, not, not just the tool maker, but all of the skills build tremendous amount of middle-class wealth. Yes. 100%. Right. That's, and, and, and that's what makes a nation strong. Yeah, I agree. And, and and I think in many ways, for many reasons, that's what's been gutted out of out of the United States. Yeah. And I think we're starting to realize, you know, Jeepers, we need to fix that. <laughs> and 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 we're making inroads to that. By the way, if you want to look at security too, uh, I read a report a couple months ago. Again, I can't. I, I'm getting old. I can't remember all the data and statistics. Our military readiness from a manufacturing perspective, China's caught up. Like matter of fact, I think if it came yeah. down to wartime. And we had to, uh, you know, tool up manufacturing infrastructure in the United States to build aircraft carriers or airplanes. I think China can do it almost seven times faster than we can. And you want to talk about yeah. military readiness. You want to talk the ability to, you know, react to major catastrophes and other issues around the world. The pandemic was a great example. We couldn't buy, we couldn't make masks fast enough. We couldn't stay ahead of the curve on specific, you know, products that were manufactured. And that to me is a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Dave, you, you're what I, what I describe in, at least in my own head as a seasoned entrepreneur, right? You've been, <laughs> you've been at this for a while, Yeah. not, not, you know, building a business and selling it in three years, but yeah. starting a business and building it and building it into a solid, sustainable, yep. profitable, you know, profitable business. Yeah. Just really good. So what, what sort of, what are the top two or three lessons that you've learned from that? Yeah, I'll tell you the number one thing I've learned and I learned hard over the last couple of years in particular was if you find out what you're really and I used to be the guy I'd be like, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. I can make anything work. I can solve any problems. I can do anything I want to put my mind to and all the other BS they teach you. The uh, I know that sounds terrible. But it's true. You know, are you there? Yeah, I'm there. Oh, sorry. So the um, so the, the number one lesson I learned is really understand the business that you're in. And the sets of capabilities that you truly stand out with, right? So in, in, in the world of MBAs, in the world of entrepreneurship, they'll call that what is your value proposition that truly is, is that you're superior at to your competition. And once you find that out, once you figure out what that is, and you want you want to dial deep into that, right? You want to you want to double down on that, you want to stay in your lane, you want to keep your head down, you want to figure out. How do I take that and then make that as big as possible, as profitable as possible without veering outside of my lanes? And I've done everything outside. Like I'm the, pro, the, the, the atypical entrepreneur that, you know, has made all the startup investments and gone outside of my, 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 uh, my primary business. And I have a CEO coach. He told me a couple weeks ago, he says, hey, catch me up on everything you've invested in the last, you know, four or five years. 
And he says, you're like 0 for 9 outside of P1. And I said, yeah. He goes, you're literally the worst yeah. investor I've ever met in my yeah. entire life. He goes, he goes, call me and tell me the stocks you're going to buy. I'm going to sell those stocks. I'm going to short them. Um, but what I discovered when I put my head down. So last year, I put my head down in the business. Like, like I said, you know what? We bought another business in Colorado. It didn't work out very, very well. Um, I went outside of my lane. There was a whole set of capabilities that we did not have that I thought we had. I thought I could overcome it with sheer hard work and everything else. And last year, I said, you know what? I'm going to go back to my blueprint. When I built this $18 million company back from 06 to 16, we bought equipment. We invested in apprentices. We, we invested in sales and marketing. We made good products. We improved our capabilities. We invested in lean manufacturing. And in Vela, last year, we grew our revenues, our output by 25%, our gross margin by 65%, and our EBITDA by 151% in one year. Then I started looking at that. I'm like, I'm like oh, my God. I live in Schenectady, New York. And our business produced millions and millions of dollars in net cash flow, which goes very, very far in Schenectady, New York, by the way. And not only that, I was able to give all my employees 13% raises last year because I said, I don't want you to have to be burdened by inflation. And, and I'm willing to share that with you and be able to do that because I want you to be able to afford gas and groceries and eggs. And all sure. Things yeah. Like but what I, the number one thing I've learned is stay in your lane and do what you do better than anyone else that does it. And if you want, you can grow that. You can become as big as you want doing that, right? People are like, oh, but I want to become bigger and everything. Yeah, if I do contract manufacturing better than anyone else in my industry, I could buy 50 contract manufacturers and apply my system and our process and our focus and our sales right. and marketing. And that's what I learned. We make the most money when we stay focused, when we put our efforts into the capabilities that we've mastered that are better than our competition. That's the number one thing that I've learned. And number two, I think this is a very cliche, but it's absolutely true. You cannot do things on your own. You have to have a team that is in full alignment, gets the strategy, understands the vision, understands exactly how they contribute to it, and that are well measured and well incentivized. And I think if you do those couple of things well, you can build anything. Yeah, well said, well said. So as you look into your crystal, oh, let me ask you a question. How, what do you do on an active, from an active perspective to maintain your, your, your own and the business's edge that it has in the marketplace? I'm I'm a huge, huge reader. Like I know that you know you, people are going to give real sexy answers stuff. Look, I read a boatload. I consume fifty to sixty books annually. Um, I love learning from other people's experiences, what they've done. And one thing, one of our values in, in, in our in our culture is learning. We're always willing to learn new things and try new things. And and when it comes down to our capabilities, we all you know again we're a capability-driven manufacturing company. So everything we do. And, and people are included in our capabilities, their ability to produce product, their ability to, you know, all these different things. So anything we do is about learning how to improve the capabilities that we currently manage. We want to add capabilities in the future, but how do we make them better and better and better and better? And that includes technology. I think the greatest thing that's happened, I know this sounds really terrible, but I'm going to say it anyway. The greatest thing that I think has happened in the last six months is people are realizing like these companies, like I'll pick on Facebook, for example, it's a social media company okay where people do whatever they do online it's an advertising business model they don't produce anything right and some would argue do they really create value right <laughs> see they probably create more issues than yeah now it's it, it, it's fine it's good there's nothing wrong with instagram and facebook and all these other things but if you really want to make a difference in this world and that's the big you know cliche in silicon valley in these places 
wouldn't you take the technology skills that you have and apply it to a model in manufacturing or in medical, something that truly produces something that makes an impact in this world and use technology to make it better, faster, and cheaper and to improve the competitiveness of this great nation? And you know, I believe that the greatest thing that's happened is there's a big exodus of these people being laid off in these big companies. And I read an article the other day in the Atlantic and they were talking about how now these, these software programmers, these, these technologists are saying, you know what? I don't want to go to the big fang companies anymore. I don't want the Silicon Valley lifestyle. I want to go live in Idaho and apply my technology skills to a manufacturing company or to a medical office yeah. or, or one of those things. Yeah. And I think that's where you're going to see an incredible amount of value over the next 20 years that's created in our GDP is coming from technology applied to old industries. And, and, and we're one thing we do to keep an edge, we're always willing to look at new technologies, always willing to look at new ways to do things and improve the capabilities that we have, new equipment, new people, new training mechanisms, uh, software integration, 3D printing, all those kind of things. So we're ne we never sit still. People always tell me moss doesn't grow under our rock very much, and it doesn't because we're always trying to do yeah. that. Yeah. So as you look out into your crystal ball, um, what what do you see for for P1 in the next five, you know, five years from now, what, what do you envision for P1? Yeah. So I talked to you a little bit about our network strategy, our spindle strategy, where we're working with a lot of these small shops, right? So we, we're, we're, we're dialed into Schenectady, New York. So our, our vision is to uh, 10X our EBITDA, right? EBITDA is earning before interest tax depreciation. Why is that important? Because the more EBITDA we create, the more equipment we can buy, the more people can hire, the more raises we can give, the more factories we can build, the more suppliers we can buy from. So everyone just says, oh, you have a financial target. No, no, no. It's a financial target, which facilitates our vision to revitalize American manufacturing, okay? And that to us is hiring, inspiring the next generation workforce. It's buying state-of-the-art equipment. It's investing in new technologies and manufacturing. It's making Schenectady in New York State and the United States a highly competitive region for manufacturing and taking those things back from the international uh, uh, you know, uh, countries. So what do I see in five years? I see us generating you know, 30 million in EBITDA. I see us uh, hiring uh, in Schenectady another four to 500 people, uh, machinists, engineers, supply chain people, assemblers, other technicians. And we're going to start seeing that. You, know, you might say, well, it took you so long to get to you know, 110 people. Yes. Right. Right. But now we've got the customers, we've got the scale, we've got all these other things to start hiring on a pretty aggressive basis. And I want to I want to impact a thousand a thousand jobs at these smaller shops around the country. That to me is part of our vision. You know, we want to we want to work with with enough small shops to give them work. And we want to impact a thousand jobs positively as part of our vision to revitalize American manufacturing. And I want to build more factories in Schenectady. If you, right now we have three factories in the city of Schenectady, you know, I could see us maybe not in five years building another 30. General Electric was founded in Schenectady, New York in 1876, 1878. And they became the primary employer for industrial product lines in Schenectady. I could see us, you know, I, I gave a speech at the chamber back in October and I said for a for a city that's torn down factories for the last 50 years, yeah. we've built three factories in the last 10. And and you know, and we're just getting started. I would love to build another 30 factories in the city of Schenectady, pull people from the farms, pull people from local community, put them to work making products for drones, airplanes, power plants, submarines, aircraft carriers. I want to make products in Schenectady like GE made products for us back in the you know 50, 60 years ago. Yeah. And uh, and I want to I want to impact a thousand jobs at these small shops around the country. Yeah. Yeah. Well said, David. Hey, as always, I really enjoyed our conversation. You're a wonderful guest on, on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for doing it. Yeah, thanks, Bill. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
Bela, lots to unpack here. As always, David is a great guest and had some amazing and insightful points to make. Um, let's pull out the key lessons here. What did you find most important from your conversation with David? Yeah, so I think there's a couple things. One is interruptions, whether it be COVID or supply chain, uh, are going to happen. Wars. Yep. War, wars, right. We don't know what they are, but they're going to happen. So you, you, you better have... Uh, thought through some of those things like, okay, what am I going to do? Take a simple thing. Like you lose electricity for three days, <laughs> right? The, we have a big ice storm up here in the Northeast and we lose electricity. What are you going to do? Um, so you, there, there are things that, that you can, you can kind of think through these things, put some plans together and your plans won't get you through the thing easily, but they'll, they'll answer 60, 70% of the questions that come up along the way, which means you can, you can mobilize your workforce because they know what they need to do because you, you have some processes or procedures in place. So I think that's a great way of getting through some of those things quickly. I, I think the other part that I found interesting was this notion of internships and, and, uh, you know, he, he has a workforce problem. And, and, and not that he can't hire people. He can't hire people who have the right skills I because mean, he pays well. That's, that's, not, a, that's not an issue. Um, but he, he has to find machinists uh, and people who are computer literate, right? So the, the old traditional person sitting at a lathe, you know, turning the handles on it to machine out a part is different, right? This is a computer-controlled device these days, and you have to understand to have programming languages and all this kind of stuff. So it's highly skilled. And... And what he's done there is he's he's bites the bullet and says, okay, I'm I'm willing to take you if you're a great person and you demonstrate some initiative and some hard work ethic. I'm willing to pay for your training to get you trained to to bring this skill to, to bear. So I think sort of his whole notion of understanding that he just can't go out and hire his workforce. He has to he has to he has to hire good people and then he has to train them, which sort of is is different than what. I think most companies approaches, right? Most companies approaches, okay, I'm, I'm looking for a person with skill X, Y, Z. I'll just go find it someplace in the marketplace. And, and David says, you know what? I'm going to find good people with good attitudes, good work ethic, and we'll get them trained. And then I think, you know, we've shown a commitment to them and I think they'll show a commitment back to commitment back to us. And in the long run, that's going to be good for, 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 for both of us, for both the business and for that individual. So I, I thought that was uh, another interesting piece. And the third one I, I, that's kind of struck me was this notion of partnering with others to supplement your capacity and capabilities, right? This notion of, gosh, just all these other small little machine shops out there and they have great capacity, they have great skills. And is there a way for me to sort of partner with them so that it supplements the capabilities and capacity that I have that then I can sell to my customers. So those were the three kind of big key takeaways to me. What about you, Mike? Yeah, I agree. And just to build on your third point, it also helps the create a resilient network because he's helping these small machine shops because he's got the sales and marketing force and he can bring in more complicated pieces of business that they could bring in by themselves. So it's almost like instead of making an acquisition, he creates this virtual network and right. he has a bigger footprint than his asset base actually is. And it's a win-win for the whole region. And he focuses on the region, which I thought was, I thought was great. Yeah. I mean, I think you can even go back because I think there's a really important lesson here for 
all entrepreneurs, not even the ones in man, only in manufacturing, but in almost every field. You know, again, I think I mentioned this in the, in the last episode. He found a niche. He built a competitive advantage where he could do something in this niche better than his rivals could. And then he scaled that niche up. He leveraged it into um, into into the ability to grow into new, more customers and more assets, more employees. Um, and I th I think it might be worth going through those because I think there's only really four, three or four of those. Um, that's just a great takeaway. That's textbook entrepreneurship, and he did it. Yeah. What do you yes, think? Yes, he did. Yeah. yeah. So go through them, Mike. What are okay. they? So I think the first You're one the was. Professor. You're the professor. Well, you're the retired professor. I'm the currently employed professor, but I'm looking forward to retirement. I'll tell you that right now, Bela. I'm jealous. But I think the first one that that I've heard um, him talk about, and he talked about this one too, if you go back to episode two, is having a unique value proposition, having something that you do that makes you unique, um, leverage that value proposition. And what I mean is like, why would you go to P2? What do they do, right, that other competitors maybe don't do or won't do or can't do? Um, and you have something that's that's unique and that people are willing to pay for. The second is do that so well that it becomes a competitive advantage, that you're locked into saying, yeah, we have the skills, we have the machines, we have the people, we have the logistics capability to do whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's making parts for submarines or making hamburgers, right? That we can do this in a way that's, um, that's, that's repeatable, um, that's valuable, um, that gives customers satisfaction. They believe that whatever they're paying for it, they got a pretty good deal, right? That, yeah, I might've paid more for this, but it's worth it and I'll come back again. That's the essence of having a value proposition and a competitive advantage is that you can deliver this time and time again, okay? He talked about staying in your lane, right? Knowing what your core areas are and sticking to that. Um, we've gone through ups and downs of diversification, right? This word meaning, oh, I'm gonna get into these different businesses and try to diversify more my portfolio to reduce my risk. And time and time again, we've learned through history that a little bit of that is okay, but mainly you do need to stay in your lane and know, do what you know well and stick to it. Um, so he did that really well. And then, you know, the third point I think that I heard him say, and again, we've heard him say this a couple of times, is the importance of your team, of A, attracting and, and, and selecting the right people. And you already mentioned about the characteristics that he hires for. Um, but with them, share information, be open, um, try to anticipate their needs, incentivize them to do the things that you need them to do for your business, and then reward them for it. And like you said, he pays well and he treats his employees well. Um, and he talked about sharing uh, profits with his, his team, right, with uh, inflation and things like this. Um, he does this. And then the fourth thing I, I, I love when he talks about this, because, you know, this is something that I at least is one of the reasons I do what I do is he reads a lot. And he's always learning. And I think that, you know, in academics, this is what we kind of do, right? And it's viewed as kind of a bad thing, but I think that it's a really good thing. And I think people in the industry need to do it too, is keep up with what's going on, learn what's coming around the corner. You know, like right now, the buzz is chat GPT, right? Is all this artificial intelligence stuff. And, you know, I'm thrilled. I'm, you know, I'm 55 years old and I'm learning about all this stuff and I'm figuring out how it, what, how it works. And, and I'm excited to, to learn, even though it's a threat to my job in some ways, but you always got to kind of keep on top of your game and you always have to have the knowledge to have conversations and ask questions. And I've got all kinds of experts around here. I'm not an expert, but I know, Hey, I can ask good questions. Right. And David's the kind of guy I think that he's an avid reader, like you said, and he's always up on the latest and he always has interesting ideas and you want to learn with him, right? This, he engages people. Um, and I think he, he, it, it, this is one element of being a great leader. So I think the understanding the unique value proposition, 
leveraging that into competitive advantage by staying in your lane, have a great team that can help you execute it, and then read and learn to be a great leader um, so that you're always kind of on top of your game. Those are, I think, the four things that I think every entrepreneur, no matter what field you're in and what your goals are, um, can take away uh, with as a kind of a cool gen general roadmap to success. What do you think? Right, right. It's great points there, Mike. So, you know, I've known David for a, a, a long time, and um, th there's a couple of key things I want to uh, sort of uh, reinforce of what you said. So one thing, this this notion of um, understanding what you do really, really well. And I will tell you in the past that that Dave has has wandered away from his core business on occasions and and tried to do other things related, but, you know, uh, other sort of endeavors. And 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 I think he has learned the hard way that the greatest value of his time is focusing and staying within what he does at P1. That that gives him the greatest return, so to speak, on his time, his energy, and, and, and everything. Because every time he's wandered away a little bit, two things have happened. One is P1 has suffered a little bit because he's not paying 100% attention to it. And, and the other endeavor maybe looked good in the beginning, but it really didn't turn out that well. So I, I think this notion of figuring out what you do really well, uh, figuring out your value proposition and focusing on it and staying there is really, really good. The other comment I'll make is you have to remember, so this notice, no, no, notion of service, right? Meeting your delivery times, pr providing a quality product for a reasonable price uh, and, and servicing your customer really well. So when, when a customer buys something from you, they're taking a risk, right? Because the thing they're buying from you is maybe going as is a component of a bigger project, or maybe it's, you know, something that an end user is going to put on their fireplace mantle and, and they've told their partner about it and they're all excited, right? And if you're late or the product doesn't meet its quality, you, you've just embarrassed that person, right? And they will not forget that, right? And I, and I've, I used to build a bunch of stuff in my engineering career right? When I worked in the corporate world and I'd order parts from a bunch of different suppliers. And sometimes those parts would be late. You know, they'd promise me something, but it would, it'd come in three, four weeks late. Well, it was a, that would make my whole project late. Right. And then I had to explain that to my boss right? and, and it, and, or to my customer. And, and that causes me headaches. So the notion is don't cause your customer headaches. <laughs> don't, don't cause, a, don't make a situation where your customer has to explain something, whether to be to their partner in life or whether to be their boss or whatever. So this notion of sort of, you know, providing a high level of service across all of those service dimensions is so much more important than going, going to somebody and say, well, I saved $50. Well, if you save $50, but it doesn't work or it's late, that $50 is meaningless. <laughs> Right. So I think that's another kind of key takeaway. Totally, totally agree, Bela. All right. You had the last word. I like it. I think it's time to wrap this up. Listeners, thanks for joining us today. We hope you found both the last two episodes with David DeSalt interesting and thought provoking. And as always, if you have questions about what we've discussed, guests to suggest, new ideas, I don't know, whatever it is you have on your mind. Well, not anything, but you know, anything reasonable, please get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com.
And please do hit that follow button on your podcasting app. So until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you soon, Mike. And from over here in Münster, Germany, Bela, auf Wiedersehen.